to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. There are several stories that I want to talk with you about today, and they're all important in different ways. You know, sometimes the stories that I cover on the Friedman Report may seem remote and not really related to our lives here in the U.S., and sometimes they may even seem trivial. But the truth is, the world is getting smaller and smaller every day through the wonders of electronics, telecommunications, rapid air travel to just about anywhere in the world. Those are just a few of the new dynamics that are driving our 21st century lives. No place is that remote anymore that we can't reach it one way or another within hours or even seconds. So today, we have stories from all over the world, and they are all relevant to our lives in one way or another. The current concern about the newest coronavirus, now called COVID-19, is one of the best examples of how a story that began in what seemed to be an isolated outbreak led to global exposure to a powerful virus that can threaten the entire world. So let's start with that story because it's starting to command the news cycle in a very big way. And the amazing thing is that the most notable thing about it is how very little we still know about it. Where it came from, how many people it's affecting, how many people have already died and where, how to contain it, how to cure it, how to stop it, and so forth. We really don't know the answers to any of these things. But we are not totally in the dark either. What is very clear is that the virus began in the city of Wuhan, China, and that the Chinese government has been concealing it and lying to the world about it since it raised its ugly head probably sometime back in November. These are big lies, my friends, gigantic lies, because the secrecy that has kept the information about the virus from the rest of the world has put the entire world at risk. And these lies do two other things. The first thing is that they make people who try to tell the truth accused as liars and criminals. That's what happens in China. But more, here in the West, People who try to tell the truth are called conspiracy theorists and alarmists and hysterics. And the second thing China's lies do is that they make people who have yet to see the effects of the virus firsthand, the lies, those lies that China tells us every day, make these people complacent so that when the virus does hit our shores, we will not be prepared to combat it. Now, that's not to say that our government agencies, the CDC and the NIH, for example, are not working to prepare for the virus. But to the average American, it's a kind of ho-hum thing that someone else will take care of, and anyway, it's over there, not here. Americans, and we can probably expand that to include Europeans as well, We all like our comfort zones. We don't want to hear about the uncomfortable truths that could threaten the comfortable way of life that we're used to because we're spoiled. 
There are antidotes and solutions to many of the problems, the illnesses, the discomforts that disrupt our lives. So we like to think that life is good and for the most part, we can deal with it. But life is not always kind or comfortable or easy. And the more we try to hide from the discomfort of a frightening reality, the less prepared we will be if and when it happens. You know, there is one exception to this generality, and that is the fear of global warming. The people who believe in the impending destruction of the planet by dramatic climate change have shown an enthusiastic willingness to embrace the fact that the planet is dying and that climate change will destroy life as we know it within a few short years if we don't do something about it right now. There's a lot to say about that on both sides, and I will talk about it on a future show, but not today. The topic for today, the COVID-19 virus, is one that people are much better prepared to ignore, and that is what is, right now, destroying China. Life in China is at a standstill. The senior government leaders are in a bunker somewhere where they will not be exposed to the virus, but the Chinese people who are exposed are out of resources, medical supplies, hospital beds, medicine, even the basic ones, even medical practitioners. These resources are depleted. When people are thought to be sick, they are taken from their homes, often by force, and placed in facilities with other infected people in large, newly built or repurposed halls in so-called hospitals with a thousand or more beds positioned so closely together that there is barely room to walk between them. Maybe you have seen the photographs. The locals call these places death factories, since the patients, so-called, receive little, if any, medical care there. They are exposed to each other's infections, and they're expected to die. What we are seeing in China, or not seeing if the Chinese government has its way, is the product of the Chinese communist ideology that supports the idea that the individual is less important than the masses who are the engine of the economy. Only now what we are seeing is this ideology taken to its illogical extreme in a situation where that ideology has spawned a huge epidemic that it cannot contain, that is destroying the population from within and bringing the wheels of production to a complete standstill. Last week, factories were ordered to reopen and their workers were ordered to return to work. In one of the first companies to open, to reopen, I should say, 200 workers returned. One became sick with a virus, and then all 200 workers were quarantined in the factory. And this is not an isolated incident. So what are the implications of the shutdown of China in the throes of this epidemic? What does it mean to our trade agreement, just signed on January 15th? nearly two months after the beginning of the outbreak. Why did China hide what was clearly an epidemic and continue to carry on with the negotiations until they finally had a signed deal? Well, maybe it was because they wanted to save face. That's very important in China. 
Or maybe it's because they thought that if they went ahead and signed the deal, somehow they would get a handle on this epidemic and shut it down. They were wrong on both counts. Because their own factories are shut down, their revenues will fall dramatically, and they will not be able to meet their own commitments to the United States as part of the trade deal. You may remember that they were already facing the possibility of a famine before this began. So they needed to deal with everything at once. Crises all around them and very few solutions so long as they continued to lie about the reality. As far as the trade agreement was concerned, there is an article in there, Article 7.6, that refers to natural disasters or other, quote, unseeable circumstances, unquote, that would trigger consultations on the agreement and maybe realign the terms of the agreement so that they could meet their commitments and they could get what they needed from this agreement. They have not yet, as far as I know, fallen back on that article, maybe because it might be seen as losing face. As I say, in China's culture, that is mortifying. To put it bluntly, China is out of control because of this virus. It has trapped itself because it had already been dealing with it for two months before it signed the deal. It got caught, and now it has to figure out how to save face, not admit its own role in the creation of the virus, and somehow come out of this with a country intact. Without reaching out for help and dealing honestly with the rest of the world, which it has infected, I don't know how they will come out of this hole. But what is happening in China will reverberate around the world because before this began, China had become the largest supplier of parts and products to industry all over the world. And because their factories are not producing the parts and the parts are not being shipped, their buyers around the world cannot complete the manufacture of their products. This will affect the economies of many countries around the globe, including the United States. Apple has already announced that it is cutting its revenue forecasts because it cannot meet their production projections because of the COVID-19 virus. What that means, if you follow the stock market, is that for every 1% drop in Apple share prices, the Dow Jones Industrial Average will fall 22 points. In other words, the impact of just this one company will be significant. And this provides the United States with an opportunity that should not be missed. From an economic point of view, we Americans should be tooling up to begin to produce those parts ourselves. This fits in with the president's aim to rebuild industry and manufacturing here at home. We should seize the opportunity now. Build the plants that can fill this gap. It can and should be done quickly and effectively so that our economy doesn't implode as our factories close for lack of essential parts. This should be a priority. So as China continues the losing battle with the virus it created, the world waits to see how the huge epidemic will affect it while the death toll continues to rise. The latest figures as of February 18th, reported by Johns Hopkins, show that the virus has infected at least 75,147 people in 28 countries worldwide 
and it has killed more than 2,000. Most of them are in mainland China. But their numbers for China depend on China's National Health Commission. And since we know that the Chinese government has been lying from the beginning about the real numbers, we can only assume that their latest report falls far short of the real numbers and that the actual number of casualties is far higher, probably by multiples of those numbers. But even if those numbers themselves, if they were true, would be daunting and honestly quite terrifying. The Chinese government has just reassured us that many of the cases in China are what they call mild. But of course, we have no proof that this is anything other than more fake news produced more for propaganda than for giving us honest information about the real state of affairs. The general feeling among experts is that although the virus has not shown up in the United States with any strength, the likelihood is that it eventually will. But there is some good news in that, at least for the moment, the virus appears to be contained in this country, in the United States, and while there was no epidemic here, that gives America another opportunity that I hope will not be overlooked. This virus, this COVID-19, provides the United States with a remarkable chance to use our superb technology and medical knowledge to focus intensely on developing rapid tests that will be able to diagnose the virus within minutes instead of hours or days, an antidote that can delay or reduce the infection, and a cure. This is an enormous challenge, but it is one that we, more than any other country, is up to. And if we allow ourselves to collaborate with other countries with highly advanced technology and medical expertise, such as Israel, for example, then the chances of success are exponential. This is an opportunity that could save millions of lives. In the meantime, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar announced last week that flu patients in San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago would be tested for COVID-19 as well as for flu. He called it an early warning system. Well, okay, it's certainly better than not testing. And Azar said in an interview on CNBC that although the risk of getting the virus here in the United States is still quite low, this situation has the possibility of changing quite quickly. One of the things that we do know about this virus is that it is highly contagious, that it also has the ability to mutate rapidly, meaning that it can change its characteristics, become stronger or more contagious, or different in some other way. But Azar assured the American public that, quote, we're deploying the full force of the U.S. government to protect the health and welfare of the American people, unquote. In other words, we're from the government and we're here to help. I hope he's right. Well, here's one way the government did help. Do you remember that cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, that was stranded in quarantine off the coast of Japan? They had a passenger list of more than 3,700 people and it had 542 cases of COVID-19 on board. The ship had been stranded for two weeks off the coast of Yokohama. And instead of becoming a safe and effective quarantine for the passengers, the ship itself became an incubator for the virus. And the number of infected passengers grew rapidly every single day. The passengers were begging to be let off the ship, 
American passengers even pleaded with the president to help them get off the ship. But because of the virus, all help was refused until they realized that the ship itself was spawning the virus. And then the first permissions came. It was finally permitted to airlift the passengers to their countries, some of them, including the Americans, who have now been airlifted home and will spend another two weeks in quarantine at three military bases that have been set up for that purpose. The story is far from over, my friends. There's a lot more to tell, and as the weeks pass, I will be bringing you as much news as I possibly can so you will know what is happening and how you can prepare for it if necessary. But that's my news on the COVID-19 virus for today. But I will be following this closely and I will keep you informed all along the way. Now I've got to take a short break, but when I come back, I want to tell you a few stories about what's happening in other parts of the world. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. There's a new kerfluffle in Washington that was brought about by one of our U.S. Senators, a guy by the name of Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut. It seems he was attending the Munich Security Conference last week in Bavaria at the same time that the president was trying to leverage Iran with some strong sanctions. And while he was there, Murphy met up with Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Jarad Zarif, and he began to discuss policy with him. This is his account of the conversation. Quote, First, I urged him to control any Iranian proxies in Iraq who might attack U.S. forces and allies there. I told him that any attacks would be met with force. Second, I pressed him to release American citizens being unlawfully detained in Iran 
And third, I pushed him to end the Houthi blockage of humanitarian aid in Yemen. Unquote. He also said that he had spoken to Zarif about Iran's support for the Shiite Houthi rebels in Yemen and about the Americans who were being held prisoner in Iran. And he even raised the issue of America's drone strike that killed Iranian General Soleimani in Iraq. A very sensitive subject indeed. The meeting occurred during a time when President Trump has been focused on isolating Iran through the re-imposition of strong sanctions under its, quote, maximum pressure campaign, unquote. Now, while Murphy may well have been critical of Trump's policy, and he certainly is entitled to disagree with the president, his discussing these issues with Zarif went far beyond the bounds of what is acceptable because his conversation undercut the president's strategy, to which he had neither input nor permission to challenge. Murphy went on to say, quote, Congress is a co-equal branch to the executive. We set foreign policy too. Many of us have met with Zarif over the years under Obama and Trump. So though no one in Congress can negotiate with Zarif or carry on official U.S. government message, there is a value to having a dialogue. I don't know whether my visit with Zarif will make a difference. I'm not the president or the secretary of state. I'm just a rank-and-file U.S. senator. I cannot conduct diplomacy on behalf of the whole of the U.S. government, and I don't pretend to be in a position to do so, he said. But if Trump isn't going to talk to Iran, then somebody should. And Congress is a co-equal branch of government responsible, along with the executive, for setting foreign policy. A lack of dialogue leaves nations guessing about their enemies' intentions, and guessing wrong can lead to catastrophic mistakes." Unquote. You know, it sounds to me like he was carrying out his own foreign policy discussion with a foreign leader without authorization. The president is responsible for foreign policy and was in the middle of a delicate, if contentious, situation with Iran. All the more reason to tread lightly and not interfere with the process. Murphy had no idea what the president's strategy with Zarif was. It was easier for him to simply say that because he didn't know what the strategy was, he assumed that there was none. <laughs> not this president. He always has a strategy. It's what he excels at. And while it may not be clear to the people outside his strategic circle that a strategy exists and what it is, you can count on the fact that there is one, and it's well thought out and well planned out. And as we have seen over the past year, it works. It worked with Mexico and Canada, and it worked with China in both deals. He was criticized roundly for lacking strategy. But both ended up, just as he wanted them, as good deals for both sides, including ours. Murphy may have felt perfectly justified, but there are laws that prevent just that sort of thing, particularly when there is someone else with greater authority carrying on the negotiations. And while it may be true that there are three equal branches of government, Congress only has the right to decide foreign policy as a body. 
That responsibility does not belong to every individual congressman or senator on his own. You know, this isn't the first time and probably isn't the last that this has happened, but it is clearly wrong. It wasn't that long ago, maybe you remember this, when former Secretary of State John Kerry went to discuss the resuscitation of the Iran deal known as the OCPOA with Iranian leaders. He was no longer Secretary of State. He had no official capacity. He didn't represent the government or anyone beside himself and maybe his former boss, who apparently sees nothing wrong with a shadow state usurping the authority of the elected government. But Kerry broke the law, and he was never prosecuted. You know, when Trump was running for office, he promised to clean up the swamp. And he's made a good start. But the corruption runs deep. And as we have seen for the past three-plus years, it will take more than that time to clean it up. The impeachment debacle and the attempted coup showed how much corruption there really is and how deep it runs. And a situation in which a U.S. senator plays the wild card and interferes with ongoing international relationships and potential negotiations without the express authority of the president is intolerable. Our Congress, as I have pointed out more than once before, is out of control. And before our country gets back on track, this chaos, this out-of-control behavior that disregards rules and laws and even common courtesy must stop. It may have reached a point where only legal action or political reprisals will be enough to stop the chaos. But one way or another, if this country is to survive, the swamp must be drained. Well, it's election time again. We knew it was coming, and I'm going to talk about it a lot more over the next few months, and a little bit more in the last segment of this show. But for now, I just want to talk about only one candidate, a man who just burst onto the scene with a big bag of money. He said he was going to self-fund his campaign with some of the billions of dollars that he has at his personal disposal. Well, of course you know whom I'm talking about. Michael Bloomberg, a soft-spoken big bag of wind who knows everything and can tell you better than you can yourself about your own worth. Usually when he tells you, it doesn't end well for you. Well, anyway, one day he was recorded saying how much he knows about farming. He said he could teach anyone to be a farmer and implied that it didn't take brains. All you need to know is, quote, you dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, you add water, up comes corn, unquote. Well, it's not that simple, Bloomberg. It's never been that simple. His campaign staff tried to set the record straight. They argued that Bloomberg wasn't talking about today's farmers, but about 3,000 years of agrarian society, and about how to help educate all Americans for better jobs in the information age. Well, it sounds good, but I'm not sure how they pulled that explanation out of what he said. But even if it were all true, it still would be insulting because today's farmer has to be technologically savvy. 
His tractors are fitted out with the latest computers and the planting is all done with the help of onboard computers mounted right on the tractor. Bloomberg is just a rich dope who likes to hear himself talk but really doesn't know what he's talking about. But let's skip technology for a minute. Even with all that, today's farmer still borrows the heart and soul of all those generations who were tied to the land and the love of farming, something Bloomberg clearly doesn't understand. But here's someone who does understand. Mike Pence released a response. It was a montage based on a poem that Paul Harvey recorded in 1978. It's called, So God Made a Farmer. Here it is. Looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay, wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40 hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, somebody who'd bale a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. But that poem really spoke to me. You see, I'm a farmer. I raise sheep and goats and chickens I plant straight lines of beans and onions and garlic, and I carry bales of hay and pails of grain for the animals and endless buckets of water so they don't get dry. I have birthed lambs and kids and bottle-fed the babies when they could not nurse and sat with my favorite doe, Annie, with her head in my lap and watched her die. I have watched endless sunrises over the fields of corn and countless sunsets over the hills in the west. I wasn't born to the farm, but I was born a farmer. And for me, this farm is just a little bit of heaven and a whole lot of love. So Bloomberg, you can take your little seed and put it in the ground you can cover it with dirt and you can put some water on it and maybe something will grow. But you will never know the joy that a farmer feels when he knows that his work is good and his land is fruitful 
when he takes the rich earth between his fingers and knows the joy of God's plan. This is the reward for being a farmer. Not the bags of gold that you hold so dear. So look down on whom you please. Disparage those you don't understand. And buy your way into the election with your bags of money. And may the better candidate win. Now, here's a nice follow-up to a story I told you about a week or two ago. Do you remember the 22,000 people who showed up in Richmond, Virginia to protest the proposed gun control laws that were being filed by the governor and that were coming up for a vote? Well, the first part about the banning of assault weapons, it failed. The Senate Judiciary Committee voted to table the bill for one year by a vote of 10 to 5, and four Democrats joined the Republicans to vote the bill down. The majority of the committee were, it seems, supporters of the Second Amendment. If it had passed, it would have banned AR-15s and other similar rifles, and it would have made it illegal to own magazines, to own magazines, that held more than 12 rounds. When the vote came in, the hall broke into cheers. Even law enforcement officers joined in the cheering. This was a major defeat for Governor Ralph Northam, but a big win for supporters of the Second Amendment in Virginia. This bill was one of the issues the governor ran on, and now it was dead for at least a year and maybe much longer. I used to live in rural Virginia, and I know how Virginians feel about their guns. They hunt, they target shoot, they talk guns, and they don't want anyone taking their guns away from them. And I can't say that I blame them. Now here's a nice story, a short one, but one that may just warm your heart a little bit. Just a year ago in Israel, 46-year-old Shachar David, from the city of Demona in central Israel, was running in the annual Dead Sea Marathon when suddenly his heart stopped, just stopped, and he collapsed on the road that passes by the Dead Sea. One of the other runners who happened to be running near him was Meir Ferminsky from Jerusalem. Meir is, as it happened, a volunteer EMT with the Jerusalem Magenda Dome, which is the Israeli version of Red Cross. He stopped immediately and began to administer CPR on the fallen runner. And he saved Shachar David's life. Shachar David lived, but his recuperation was long and intense and difficult but he felt the need to get back to his former self. And so, exactly one year later, after a great struggle to achieve his former strength, both men met again at the starting line of this year's Dead Sea Marathon. Only this year, they ran together side by side. Meir said, it was a bit strange when we met at the starting point, but also very exciting to stand there together. It's amazing to see this miracle 
right in front of my eyes and to know that I have taken part in it. I've been running regularly for many years, but there is no run that I was so excited for. Unquote. And that is a Dead Sea miracle. You know, when I lived in Israel, and I lived there for 16 years, we used to say that the only way to live there is if you believe in miracles, because they happen every day. Okay, it's time for another break, and when I come back, it's time to talk politics again. It never ends, does it? It just keeps going on and on. And along with the politics, a little bit of, you just can't make this stuff up. So don't go away. I'll be right back. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Moving right along, in the last presidential election cycle, the Republicans were criticized for the size of the field of their candidates. There were, at its largest, 17 candidates, all Republicans, running for the office of Commander-in-Chief. Oh, how the Democrats laughed. So many candidates. <laughs> Which of those clowns are you going to vote for? And yet, only four years later, the Republicans have only one viable candidate, while the Democrats, who laughed at the Republican field in 2016, now have had as many as 27 since last summer. And even today, there are still eight candidates in the race, including Michael Bloomberg, who we talked about before, who entered late and spent millions of his personal fortune to secure his place on the debate stage in Las Vegas. That's coming up very soon. The current list includes Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Tulsi Gabbard, Amy Klobuchar, Tom Steyer, and, oh yes, Michael Bloomberg. 
Seven of the candidates come to the debate stage honestly. They have spent the last few months campaigning vigorously, shaking hands, giving speeches, raising monies from supporters, participating in debates with each other, and altogether doing what the American people expect candidates to do. And then there is Michael Bloomberg. He's rich, very rich. With a net worth of more than $54 billion, he is aiming to buy himself a ticket to the Oval Office. To that end, he has already spent $338 million of his own money on media advertising alone. Until this month, the Democrat Party required candidates to raise thousands of dollars in individual contributions to their campaign. But once Bloomberg decided to enter the race, he convinced the debate organizers to change the rules so that he could participate without having to raise funds by actually talking to people or shaking their hands. According to one meme, and I haven't checked it out for accuracy, but it does make a point. Bloomberg owns two helicopters, three planes, six boats, 11 houses, and 42 cars. And because he has pledged to finance his campaign from his own funds, he doesn't have to actually ask anyone for funding. And he clearly doesn't want to. By comparison... Bernie Sanders, who has already been campaigning for eight months, has spent only $18 million on media ads. Yet, at his last rally, a reported 17,000 people showed up. That is impressive. He's the only one who has been able to attract audiences like that beside Donald Trump, who's been doing it regularly for a very long time. Now, Bloomberg comes to the race with a lot of baggage, and that load is growing rapidly because recordings of things he has said over the years are coming to light, and they are pretty ugly. He's on record for saying that the stop-and-frisk law, which he supported throughout most of his tenure as mayor of New York City, was actually a mistake, although at the time when he wasn't running for president, he spoke quite differently. And the language he used to support it was racist and ugly. In a 2015 recording from a speech he gave at the Aspen Institute, he acknowledged that the policy of stop and frisk disproportionately affected minorities. And he went on to say, quote, 95% of your murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one M.O. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are all male, minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of people that are getting killed. I'm not sure I understand that quote. It seems backwards, but never mind. That's what he said. And he went on to say, quote, and the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them up against the wall and frisk them, unquote. 
Two years before that, in 2013, he also said, quote, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little, unquote. He has also been on record for vulgar and misogynistic comments about women, about killing pregnancies, about black nannies, and much more that I wouldn't repeat on air or anywhere for that matter. To put it quite bluntly, Mike Bloomberg is a repulsive, vulgar, and despicable man. The company that he founded produces Bloomberg News, of which he owns 88%. This uh, publication and organization, because it's more than just a publication, it has a good reputation in the business world. But if you're just a regular guy working there, the conditions are less than ideal. One employee whom I know was hired as a senior programmer but wasn't given a desk in the vast computer farm that is Bloomberg. So every day when he got to work, he had to scramble to find a desk that wasn't occupied so he could have a place to work that day. To say that this was stressful is an understatement, but it also sounds like something Bloomberg might find funny. It wasn't. And by the way, he is no longer employed there. He left a long time ago. Conditions were terrible. Our president, Donald Trump, has been roundly criticized on occasion for being crude and sending inappropriate tweets. But his occasional coarseness doesn't hold a candle to the blatant vulgarity that characterizes Michael Bloomberg. And by the way, when he was mayor of New York, his racist and misogynistic policies should have disqualified him forever for holding any other public office. Since the greed and corruption of the Democrat Party seem at this point to be beyond saving, it is now up to the American people to recognize Bloomberg for who he is, a man who thinks that his money is more important than anything else and that he can therefore buy his way into the White House. It is my hope that his ugly past performance will come to light soon enough and to the extent that the American people will see him for who he is. His sheer arrogance, his vulgarity, and his racism should roundly disqualify him from the contest that 27 other candidates took seriously and did their best to compete in with relative fairness. Buying your way into the White House is about as un-American as anything I can think of. You just can't make this stuff up. And speaking of rich, have you heard about the latest pronouncement by Congress critter Maxine Waters? Here's the thing about Maxine Waters. She represents District 43 in Los Angeles, which includes the high crime area of South Central. But she doesn't live there. She lives in a multi-million dollar, 6,000 square foot home that is far enough away from her actual district that she doesn't have to visit it accidentally. Anyway, her latest brainstorm was to say that California should have more influence over the Democrat primary elections because the state has so many wealthy donors. In fact, she said that, quote, we have candidates who fly out to Los Angeles from everywhere to raise money. 
you would have two, three, four at a time in Beverly Hills having dinners or some of our contributors who are very rich were holding fancy parties trying to accommodate the requests for donations and contributions. The thinking is, she said, that if we are supplying tremendous dollars to candidates, we ought to have more say. Unquote. She thinks that Iowa and New Hampshire should no longer be the first states to hold their primaries because, quote, certainly they are not reflective of the makeup of this country, unquote. And of course, she misses the point, which is that the first round of primaries are in states that represent middle America, the heartland. They shouldn't be the richest or the biggest or the most populated. And of course, Iowa is probably up for grabs by now because of the fiasco that the DNC's software caused in the tallying of votes. The final vote, actually, only came out a few days ago, two weeks after the Democratic caucus. That was a disaster. But getting back to Maxine Waters, she really is a piece of work. Remember, she's the one who urged her supporters to go out and find members of the president's cabinet and harass them. She said to her supporters, quote, let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. If you see anybody in a department store, at a restaurant, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere, unquote. So her newest thing now is to promote more influence for rich people in the democratic voting process. Really? Talk about un-American. You just can't make this stuff up. Did you ever believe that the Boy Scouts would file for bankruptcy? Well, they're thinking about it. They haven't decided yet, but they're close. Did you ever believe that it would be because of a huge scandal involving sex abuse by a scoutmaster? And did you ever believe that they would embrace LBGTQ and would allow openly gay members and leaders accept transgenderism, admit girls? The whole concept of scouting used to be to turn boys into men. It was based on a traditional Judeo-Christian ethic, and all that has been lost. To add to that, sexual abuse goes far beyond the pale. The Boy Scouts still have assets whose estimated worth is more than a billion dollars, but their insurance companies are refusing to pay settlements to almost a dozen men who claim they were sexually abused as boys by their scoutmaster. So this is more than a financial bankruptcy. The Boy Scouts have given up all their moral principles and should also be declared morally bankrupt as well. But oh, have the mighty fallen. The story of the predator who molested dozens of boys while serving as scoutmaster. His name is Thomas Hacker. He abused the boys in the 1970s, and when the BSA, that's the Boy Scouts of America, found out, they banned him from the organization. So he just went to another city, and then another, where he abused another 35 boys over a period of 20 years. Why didn't they prosecute him? I have no answer for that. But the Boy Scouts of America may well be an organization whose time has come. And while it may file for financial bankruptcy, 
its moral bankruptcy can never be filed and never be compensated for. Okay, and one last story. The Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam is now debating whether or not to display a drawing by the famous painter Edgar Degas. They purchased it a year ago for $6 million, and they really want to display it. So what's the problem? Why should it be an issue? Well, the drawing is of a woman bathing, showing her naked from behind. So what is the problem? The museum's new director said that she is pleased that the drawing is now hanging in the museum, and she feels the need to consider, however, quote, whether female nudes are appropriate for people of all cultures, unquote. This, my friends, is code that specifically refers to the Muslims who live in the city and who may visit the museum. Will they be offended? Now imagine this. There are Muslims in virtually every city where there is also a museum, or two, or five, or ten. If we follow this line of thinking, then we should censor all nudes, all the classical paintings, for example, with um, Mother Mary nursing the baby Jesus, of Venus de Milo, half-naked on a clamshell, the paintings of Leonardo da Vinci, the classics of the Renaissance, the countless paintings and sculptures of Michelangelo, and so much more. The idea that all that history and beauty would be lost because of the hypersensitivity to people who simply do not have to go to a place where the art offends them. We were given the gift of choice, and that gift allows us to decide what we want to see and what offends us. You know, we've reached a point in the development of society when we have gone beyond what is reasonable in considering the feelings of others, when we deprive one group in order to accommodate another. There must be a compromise, some place in the middle where we can say, okay, that's fair. We can both agree that that's fair. And when that group that is deprived is by far the larger group, then the scales of what is fair and appropriate are askew and unbalanced. I've talked about this before, and no doubt I'll talk about it again. It's part of what is wrong with America today. When we bend over backwards so far in order to accommodate a tiny minority that we punish those in the majority, this is unfair. And we need to rethink the premise that created such imbalance. The American people have to return to an understanding that the world is full of people with various beliefs, various customs, various needs, and we cannot accommodate them all, all the time. We need to remember how to compromise. Well, that's about all the time we have left for our show. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed spending it with you, and I look forward to being with you again next week. And don't forget, if you have a comment or a question, if you agree with me, or if you don't agree with me, that's okay too. Send me an email. Let me know what you think. 
I'd really like to hear from you, and I will answer every email I receive. Just send it to alana at freedmanreport.com, or you can contact me on Twitter. I do tweet, and you can reach me there at freedmanreport.com. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.